Well hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode we're continuing William Creelock's Vagabonding Under Sail and we're on chapter 14. Chapter 14. Careless of Mankind. We have had enough of action and of motion we rolled to starboard, rolled to larboard when the surge was seething free, where the wallowing monster spouted his foam fountains in the sea. Let us swear an oath and keep it with an equal mind in the hollow lotus land to live and lie reclined on the hills like gods together, careless of mankind. A quote from Tennyson. There are two alternatives when sailing up through the islands. One is to pass along the boisterous eastern side in the full trade winds. The other is to take the slow but sheltered route up the leeward side of the island. Content, of course, chose the latter. When we left St George's, we stayed fairly close to the shore to see something of the scenery and progress was erratic. Sometimes the cool breath of a rain squall sent us scuttling up the coast, sometimes a calm left us apparently impaled upon a rocky point. Occasionally, the vast form of the island seemed to inhale and a timorous puff came unexpectedly from the sea. We could not reach the first of the grenadines before dark, so we headed into a little bay under the shadow of the hills and jilled about in fluky puffs looking for a spot in which to anchor. A few fishermen's huts stood beneath the palms and some small boats were scattered on the beach. Don was standing on the stern, attending to the patent log. There came an unexpected puff, a belated shout of warning from the helmsman, a jibe and a splash. Don is fairly buoyant, however, so the tragedy was short-lived and he clambered back aboard while we glanced uneasily at the group of fishermen before whom we were representing British yachtsmen. We suffered during that night from a swell which slunk into our anchorage and I greeted the new day by being sick. It was with some relief that we weighed anchor and sailed out from under the lee of the island into a windswept day. Now we were approaching a cruising man's paradise with a thousand beckoning bays and beaches. For sixty miles between the mother islands of Grenada and St Vincent, the sea was sprinkled with more than a hundred tiny islands. The largest were a few miles long and inhabited and cultivated, the smallest were mere rocks. The sextant could be put to bed now and the large-scale chart brought out. Our first objective was Curaçao, largest of the Grenadines. We left Ile de Ronde to starboard and passed the pyramid of rock called Kikum Jenny. Jenny is notorious for the rough waters encountered near her and her name is said to be derived from Kekwo Jenny, island which bothers one. The waves is big, big man, we had been told by the fishermen. On this day, however, Jenny levied no toll, and during the evening we started beating up to Curaçao itself. We negotiated a narrow passage past an islet and anchored in the open bay off the village of Hillsborough. Curaçao has a population of about 8,000 and produces limes and sea island cotton for export. At one time, sugar was grown, but soil erosion and economic factors have destroyed the industry, though in name and features some of the population bear traces of the Scottish planters who once were there. The manager of the little lime oil factory was a schoolmate of Ernest's and undertook to drive us over the few miles of island roads. The car was a battered Plymouth of ancient vintage which bumped and boiled its way over the hills while we clung grimly to its body to hold both it 
and ourselves in place. The effort was well worth it, for while we allowed the engine to cool and some part of its intestines to readjust itself, we strolled to a hill overlooking the northeastern side of the island. We were gazing over a small green valley speckled with the red roofs of peasant huts and saw the lucid blue water lapping over the fringe of shimmering white beaches. A cable's length away, a coral reef lay creamily awash, protecting the shallows inshore, and the islet of Petite Martinique reared its conical shape a mile beyond. And other shades of livid lightning, green haunted the shallow places, wherever the tranquil blue met the white sand beneath it. The vividness of this green was breathtaking, and shone up out of the water as though a giant neon tube ringed the island. Beneath the palms below us, we could see the berth of a schooner, with its crude frames propped up upon the shore, and on the reef we saw the death of another, recently lost on a smuggling run, the lifeless wood lying bleaching in the sun. Petite Martinique is the centre of a healthy little smuggling trade. It seems that all over the world there exists a benign system of regulations which keeps the trade alive and provides a smuggler with ample opportunity for following his calling. In the unsophisticated little grenadines, for instance, its survival is assured by a system under which those islands north of Curaçao are administered by St. Vincent and those to the south by Grenada. Before leaving Curaçao, I spent a most instructive evening with the old parish priest. Not only was he the only authority on birds of the area and the compiler of a small dictionary of local words and phrases, but he spent with me a most absorbing evening trying to rediscover, by trial and error, his carefully calculated recipe for the perfect rum punch. After three days, we left Hillsborough and sailed out of the bay bound for the little lagoon of Tobago Cays. The cook for the day was always absolved from any labour involved in sailing the boat except when getting underway or coming into anchor. Being the cook this day, I had a chance to reflect upon the two very different types of windward sailing. In the featureless open sea, it is a discouraging business with nothing to indicate one's progress. But here among the islands, each leg to windward brought its own reward. Every bay and headland revealed some new wonder, like the turned pages of a book. So we enjoyed our sail and stood away towards the dramatically pinnacled outline of Union Island, five miles to the north. Anticipating a more boisterous passage, Ernest and I had tried a new seasickness remedy recently recommended to us. It was remarkably easy to take, and consisted of a good swig of rum. On this occasion, however, the remedy had had no real test, and we were unable to decide whether it was designed to prevent seasickness or just to make the whole thing seem more tolerable. Our course lay to windward among the islets, and we made better progress than we had expected. It was particularly exacting sailing for Swizzle. Every time we came close to land, he trotted up to the bow and stood with his head through the lifelines, sniffing at the patches of land which came so close only to recede again. Tobago Cays must be one of the most delightful small boat anchorages in the Caribbean. Four tiny islands lie within the curve of a horseshoe-shaped reef. At the open or leeward end of the shoe is the slightly larger island of Mayero. The main channel into the lagoon is on the northern side, but a smaller inlet leads through a narrow gap in the coral on the southwestern side, that we were now approaching. As we grew near, a lingering rain squall obscured everything, but by the time we were probing the entrance itself, the squall had cleared away, leaving a gentle breeze from ahead.
Perhaps it was because we had been told, you must go in under power, of course, that we decided to enter under sail. A slight adverse current complicated the task, but we slowly edged our way in with a series of short tacks. The water shallowed until we could see the clear sandy bottom and the dark stains of coral. John sat on his crossed tree perch. Ernest was at the helm, and I stood by the shrouds watching those dark patches inching closer and singing out when it was time to go about. Our channel was so narrow that Content scarcely had time to gather way on one tack before we brought her round onto the other. At the end of each leg, we silently watched the coral patches under our lee bow as we swung foot by foot into the wind. We seemed to hang in stays for hours instead of seconds, the jib feebly flapping and the main sheet block sporadically clanging on its horse. Then the jib would arch and tauten and the block fell quiet and we were rippling over a clear sandy bottom, 50 yards across the channel. Then sails a flap as we swung again as though content were an aged dowager who, unaccustomed to such pirouetting, vigorously fluttered her fan. The sailing had some of the charm of model yachting about it, but now the yacht was real and the land might have been make-believe. In that lagoon, we might have been in a miniature Caribbean as we tiptoed through the lee of one little island, swung rustling into the narrow channel separating it from its neighbour and saw the anchor nestle into the sand 15 feet below. Another small island lay across the other end of the channel and a little golden beach gleamed abreast of us on either side. Half a mile away, the waves burst upon the horseshoe reef and further to windward, the swell blundered forlornly over the world's end reef. Here at last was complete seclusion. No officials to be interviewed, no shopping to be done. We could explore the islands in the dinghy and row among the strange coral shrubs on the reefs. We could lie on the little beach and watch the crisp little wavelets patterning the sand and gaze up through the trees at the flight of the trade wind clouds above. But though we nibbled at the lotus, we also achieved more mundane things. We painted the topsides and Ernest overhauled the lifelines and their fittings, while Don constructed a viewing box through the perspex bottom of which we peered hungrily at the marine life below. It was not long before we gave some attention to the slaughter of this life and Don brought out his hooks and lines and set out in pursuit. But that evening no fish lay sputtering in our pan. Two fish we had caught, two gaily coloured little coral fish, but in the best tradition of private enterprise these profits had been ploughed back into the business, providing the bait for the monsters which never came. After three days we thought we should be on our way once more and selected Kanawan a few miles to the north as our next objective. There was no room in our channel to go about under sail and run out, so we hoisted sail, made a stern board till we were free, and swung away on the starboard tack. Our exit channel was well marked by the swirl of the sea as it slithered over the rocks on either side, and two hours later we were under the lee of Kanawan. Another hour of beating in uncertain puffs enabled us to wriggle deep into Charlestown Bay. We liked Kanawan. We liked the cheerful friendliness of its little community. At two places where we bought food, we were given a little gift of fruit to take away. The people are poor by our standards, yet they are far better off than the slum dweller at home. Their huts are small and ramshackle, but in their climate they can live in the open air. Their clothes are threadbare and patched, but they never, never feel cold. 
Their food is plain and unvaried, but it grows in abundance at their door. Even their dogs were sleek and well-fed, which is most unusual in the tropics. Time is the least valuable possession of these people. We stood for nearly an hour in the small store, talking to an aged man and duly admiring his recently broken ankle, of which he was immensely proud, before we realised that he was the proprietor and had not yet thought to ask us what we required. Early next morning, we weighed anchor and Canawan passed astern, a part of it having passed uncomfortably close to our keel. Our next stop was the island of Bequia, 15 miles away, and we pinched up into the wind to try to overcome the lee-going current. We struggled up to windward, and in the late afternoon rounded the last headland and motored up to the head of Admiralty Bay. Bequia is a salty little place which used to be renowned for its boat building. As we approached the huddle of schooners which lay brooding in the dusk of the narrow bay, we became the target for a hundred shouted directions, all of them contradictory and most of them unintelligible. Two zealous young chaps represented the customs and police and asked us every question which a fertile imagination and a high sense of duty could concoct, though it was difficult to find any connection between the information required and our proposed two-day stay in Admiralty Bay. There was only one way to put an end to the fusillade, and we tumbled below for a tot of rum, all formalities forgotten. It was a beautiful anchorage at Bequia. Trading schooners and small fishing craft crowded the bay and lay so close to the shore that the palm tree shade almost touched their foredecks. A large black schooner was careened far over on her side while the busy hammers hardened up her garbed seams. On the beach were the skeletons of two schooners which had been born prematurely during the wartime boom and now lay beneath the palm trees awaiting a rebirth which might never come for the schooner trade was gradually being captured by the shipping lines. Sitting on deck beneath our awning, we could watch the daily movement of boats and see the departure and arrival of the trim little 30-foot sloops which carried the mail across the 10-mile channel to St. Vincent. It was here that Ernest, who for months had been pleading for a trial run with our hair-cutting clippers, at last persuaded Don to submit himself as a model. It must have been several hours later that the operation was completed, or that Don's spirit of cooperation was overcome by justifiable anxiety for his scalp. Ernest had boldly ploughed his furrow up the nape of the neck until Don, in the role of backseat driver, urged the other to exercise due caution and to take the corner slowly. The main point at issue was not so much the quantity that was being removed as the varied intensity of the crop. The final result was a credit to Ernest for within a matter of weeks Don was able to walk about again without a hat. We left Bequia early on a December morning and found that two other craft were accompanying us across the Straits to Kingston, the capital of St. Vincent. One of these was a trading cutter of our size and it was clear that there would have to be a race. There was a good breeze outside which enabled us to lay the direct course to Kingston. Our opponents left the harbour about a cable's length ahead of us which would at least save us from the ignominy of being passed, but as we nosed into the seas, we seemed to be gaining slightly. It was wonderful sailing, with the sunshine and the blue sea, and every now and again a white veil of spray fluttering over our bows. The only moment of excitement was provided by Ernest. We were about halfway across and were just holding our own against the local sloop. 
one particularly frolicsome wave, larger than its fellows, came prancing forward and gave content a hearty push, which sent her sprawling to leeward. There came the sound of a muffled crash and the thump of a falling body. Jammed against the lifelines was the striped underbelly of a mattress, from under the ends of which protruded the bare feet and tousled head of Ernest, so recently peacefully dozing. For a moment, everything was still. Then we saw a series of convolutions emanating from the centre of the heap and a body slowly emerging. It was fortunate indeed that he had overhauled those lifelines at Tobago Cays. Otherwise, well, we might have lost the mattress. As we began to bear away a little for Kingston Bay, the sloop started to pull away from us. She was going extremely well and of course these were the conditions for which she was rigged, whereas Content could have done with a little more wind. We arrived a poor second, but soon forgot about our defeat in the absorption of beating in among the anchored schooners. St. Vincent is outwardly very similar to Grenada. We saw the same rugged volcanic origin, the same colour scheme of browns and blues in the waters of the harbour, the same whites and yellows of the town itself, and the same countless greens of the hills behind. But each island has its own character and peculiarities, and it was of these that we thought as we tumbled into the dinghy and rowed ashore. We soon found that a more secluded anchorage off the beach club lay a few miles along the coast. If any inducement were needed to make us move, it was provided by a nicely upholstered blonde who told us that there we would be more conveniently placed to attend bathing parties and picnics. So eager were we to move that as we sailed slowly out of the bay, we scarcely heard the frenzied shouts of the fishermen. It was purely by chance that we glanced astern and saw that, though we were undoubtedly moving out of the bay, the dinghy was bobbing demurely where she had slipped her painter. Our new anchorage was a narrow channel between the bathing beach and a small green conical island. It was probably this strategic position which accounted for the whirl of hospitality into which we were drawn during our ten-day stay. The people of St. Vincent lived at a rollicking pace with which we found some difficulty in keeping up, though under the influence of the friends we made there, especially Jerry, we made a reasonable showing. As Grenada has its characteristic crop of nutmeg, so St. Vincent has its arrowroot. Its light soil provides the numerous springs and rivulets which are essential in the processing of the arrowroot. Sea Island cotton too is one of the main products and is carried by trading schooners and sloops from the neighbouring grenadines to the central ginneries. Kingston comes to life on Saturday, for that is market day. In the big open market in the centre of the town, Portly local women and lean East Indian women sit behind their stalls on which are piled the fruits which have come in from the villages. A large notice board displays the permitted prices and nearby the butchers hack and slash at their stringy meat. Since dawn there has been a steady stream of small open fishing boats across the channel from Bequia with their overlapping jibs and frayed long boomed mainsails. They come swishing across the bay and grind to a standstill on the beach. Out jump weirdly clad figures in tattered clothes and jaunty wide-brimmed straw hats and with the help of the onlookers each boat is hauled clear of the water and chocked up alongside its neighbour. A press of chattering women descend upon it to capture the best of the fish. A pleasant picture it made, this line of curving stems, each with its jib rolled up above it, the jibs are never lowered, and each new arrival submerged in the sea of swaying baskets and bobbing straw hats and coloured kerchiefs until the atmosphere glinted with bickerings and shouts and laughter. One morning, 
While shopping in town, I saw that the population was steadily being drawn off in one direction, so I followed and came to the scene of a fire. An excited mass of people was effectively blocking the track leading to the burning shack. Perspiring policemen toiled up the hill uncoiling fathoms of hose. At the foot of the hill, the fire pump roared into life. Amidst mounting excitement, the water forced its way up the slope. We could see the swelling now struggling up the hose. We could also see that it was a race against time. Could the water reach the end of the hose at all? And if so, could it reach it before the fire went out? By the ruins of the hut stood a massive local constable. The nozzle clutched firmly to his midriff. The water surged up. The bucket brigade stood back. This was his hour. With a warning gurgle and a mild spluttering sound, the water finally emerged and with the last of its strength oozed out of the nozzle and splashed noisily onto his shiny black boots. Modern engineering had failed and the bucket brigade, in the picture once more, came to terms with science, filling their pails at the dribbling hose and throwing water on the nearly exhausted fire and on anybody who happened to be within range. The show was now over. The Land Rover is a British vehicle very similar to a Jeep, and one night we were taken for a drive in one. As we sped along the roads and screeched round the corners, we gradually became aware of two things. The first was that we had all just been to a very good party, in fact, to several very good parties, and the second was that the person at the wheel was the agent for Land Rovers, while the passenger beside him was the island's agent for Jeeps. Even while we groped blindly for handholds, we realised the implications of such a situation. Conditions were tolerable as long as we kept at least two wheels on the ground, but apparently that allowed too little scope for a demonstration of the vehicle's true capabilities, and the next moment we had plunged down the beam of our headlights and were swaying down a steep, boulder-strewn embankment. We were too proud to ask for mercy. Those boulders, which could not be avoided, and there were many, we simply bounced over. There was no pretense at even a track now. We were crossing open country, and in the back seats the three contents were thrown under, over, and apparently through each other like the ingredients of some ghastly cocktail. We could do no more than hold on as best we could. Our teeth, from which the fillings had long ago been shaken, shone in a series of heroic grins. Below us, content lay quietly above her anchor, and we began to feel the need for the relatively soft life at sea, and on noon of a fine day, left our little anchorage and crept out to sea. Well, that's the end of today's chapter. We're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going round. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. 
and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.